Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Helix Show. Chances are, you live in a parallel universe. Multiverses are basically everywhere. Movies, philosophical debates, books, podcasts, and magazines are but a few of the media you can see them in. This universe is only one of an infinite number. Worlds without end. Some benevolent and life-giving. Others filled with malice and hunger. Dark places where powers older than time lie ravenous and waiting. Vast multiverse, Mr. Strange. If any of you don't know, that was an audio clip from Doctor Strange, a 2016 Marvel movie. And as you heard in the clip, the Marvel world is actually a multiverse, and this might be the sort of perception of parallel universes you have, filled with strange, hostile creatures, or maybe even aliens. I think that parallel universes pop up in popular culture a lot because it's interesting to imagine different worlds, and just as the Copernican Revolution or the Big Bang Theory or cosmology makes us feel really small in the universe, I think that the concept of a multiverse removes some of our egocentric tendency as humans. And this actually reminds me of a D.F. Wallace quote from his novel Infinite Jest. Quote, Everyone is identical in their secret unspoken belief that way deep down they are different from everyone else. Does it take away from our sense of uniqueness if we know that there might be more of us floating out here in these coordinates of space-time? I don't think so, but it certainly warrants fascination. Parallel universes have made their appearance in Wizard of Oz, Star Trek, and from a quick Google search online, I found that it also appears in many different anime series. And let's be honest, You've probably imagined it before, a copy of yourself running around in some other dimension, living out a life almost but not quite identical to our own. But this might not just be some quixotic figment of your imagination. Physicists currently believe that this actually might be the case. So today, we're going to try to go through a math-free conceptualization of this topic.
First, let's meet the electron. You've probably heard of electrons, tiny subatomic particles that are actually incorrectly modeled to be in shells around the nucleus, but that debate is for another podcast. Electrons are a bit odd in the sense that they have the ability to simultaneously spin clockwise and anticlockwise at the same time. And this makes no sense. How can one particle spin both ways at the same time? Like, I can't spin right and left at the same time. But here we're going to have to delineate from classical mechanics to treat an event and its detection as two different yet fundamental aspects of the data collection process. In classical mechanics, we assume that the way things are recorded are the way things happened in real life. In other words, you can perform an experiment to determine the state of a system. But if you tuned into last month's episode touching on the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, you probably know that this isn't the case in quote-unquote real life or the quantum world. The state of a system and its measured values are two different things. We talked about the electron spinning two different directions, but what is spin in the first place? I don't really have a good answer for that, and it seems like most people in the physics community do not either. Spin can be naively thought of as imagining particles as little tops spinning about an axis, but particles don't really have one axis, and if we were to work out the math, it turns out that the electron would have to be actually bigger than an atom for this theory to work. So for our purposes, let's just say spin is a property, a degree of freedom attached to an electron or a particle. A lot of the time, it's portrayed as an arrow that points in some direction. A particle of spin zero is like a dot, and it looks the same from any direction you were to observe it. And the particle of spin one looks different from different angles until you spin it around a complete revolution. So this is often analogized to an ace of spades card, one that doesn't look identical until you spin it around 360 degrees, just like a one-sided arrow would. And as the spin gets higher and higher, the amount you have to turn it to get an identical-looking particle becomes smaller and smaller. A spin of 2 means that you only have to turn it half a revolution in order for it to look the same, like a double-headed arrow. And conversely, a spin of one-half means that you have to turn a particle two revolutions for it to look the same. And actually, particles with this half-spin make up the matter in our universe. So quarks, electrons, nucleons, and neutrinos all have this half-spin. Particles with other spins give rise to forces between these matter particles, which obey the Pauli exclusion principle that basically states that two similar particles can't exist in the same state. And this Exclusion principle is basically what prevents our universe from collapsing into particle soup, and it's actually due to this principle how stars are able to maintain this pressure and supernovas or different types of stellar evolutionary fates occur when different degeneracy pressures due to these exclusion principles are violated. Before moving on, I want to give a word of caution about treating spin like a vector in space, because it's really not. If we have an apparatus that tells us if a particle spin is plus one or minus one, and the apparatus was aligned with the particle vertically, then it may spew out plus one. If we flip it 180 degrees, 
it spits out minus 1. This may lead us to believe that spin is a vector indicating some direction in space. But what happens if we turn the apparatus sideways? If spin was a vector, the apparatus should spit out 0 because there is no horizontal components of a vertical vector. But surprisingly, spin turns out to be either plus 1 or minus 1, which throws our vector idea out. So back to electrons, they seem to spin both directions simultaneously. This idea was confirmed by the famous Stern-Gerlach experiment of 1922, conducted by the title Otto Stern, who was a Prussian physicist who constructed the experiment a year earlier, and someone named Walter Gerlach, who was basically a full-time Nazi. And this is actually why in the Nobel Prize that they got for their work, he wasn't included in the citations. From classical physics, we know that whenever a charged particle moves, it creates a magnetic field. And you may recognize this as the general theme of Ampere's law, moving charges create magnetic fields. We also know that if a charged particle moves in a circular path, it generates magnetic fields that make it look basically like a bar magnet, as long as we don't zoom in too much. Stern and Gerlach sent a beam of silver atoms through an uneven magnetic field generated by something now called a Stern-Gerlach apparatus, which are basically different magnetic plates that we won't really get into how it works here. A magnetic dipole, like a magnet, would experience a force due to the magnetic field line. If there were a bunch of random magnetic dipoles between the magnetic plates of the machine, there should be an approximately smooth distribution inside the apparatus. Because if you imagine a bunch of magnets inside this uh, apparatus, let's say that a magnet with the north side facing up will go directly to the top, and a magnet with the north side facing down will go directly to the bottom. But if the magnet is tilted, then it will go to the plate that has a component of force in that direction. And if all of these are random, then there should be just like a random distribution of different oriented magnets. And they should all basically create like this smooth smear when you're measuring the distribution of these particles. Since electrons have zero orbital angular momentum, we would expect there to be no interaction with an external magnetic field at all. The silver atoms that were used in this experiment were actually used because they have one outermost electron modeling kind of like an electron by itself. But Stern and Gerlach found that the beam of silver atoms were actually separated, so they were affected by the magnetic field, and they were separated into two different parts. There are only two possible orientations of the magnetic moment, rather than a smooth distribution. In 1925, Goldsmith and Uhlenbeck proposed that the electron had intrinsic angular momentum, which allowed it to be affected by these fields. And this angular momentum is independent of its orbit, which actually leads to many of the following misconceptions about spin that we talked about. And jokingly, a lot of people just say spin is something like a ball spinning, except it's not a ball and it's not spinning. So there's definitely a lot of confusion on what spin actually is, just like there is confusion on what energy it actually is or what charge actually is. But anyways, electrons have two eigenstates because it only can move up or down. But we don't know its orientation until we measure it. So quantum physicists say that it exists, both spinning up and down, until we measure it, 
where the quantum state then collapses and we get one finite value. As Jeremy Harris puts it, to imagine how this works, it helps to think about colors. If clockwise is white and anti-clockwise is black, then electrons can be gray. And just a quick note here, if an electron spins clockwise, it's called spin up, and if it's counterclockwise, it's called spin down. Quantum mechanics states that these gray particles are spinning around everywhere. But this then begs the question, why? If the world is filled with these tiny spherical objects spinning around, why have I never noticed this? Well, this question is right at the heart of the multiverse theory. Imagine you have an electron and a cat in a box with a spin detector that will buzz if the electron is spinning clockwise and it won't make a sound if the electron is spinning anti-clockwise. Now, if the spin detector goes off, it will send a signal to a gun to shoot at the cat. This is a super realistic scenario, I know. But let's imagine the cat where the electron is spinning clockwise. The detector will buzz and the gun will shoot at the victim of our experiment, which is the cat. But if the electrons are spinning anti-clockwise, the detector won't buzz, so nothing will happen. Here we've created two perfectly sensible stories, quotes around sensible, one where that cat lives and another where a cat dies. But as we know, our electron doesn't just spin one way, instead it spins both ways. So as a result, we've created what is called a zombie cat. With our quantum zombie cats in mind, let's tell a new story one where the electron is spinning in both directions. What we want to know is whether the detector will buzz or not. Well, according to quantum mechanics, almost as if it's been split up, half the detector will see the electron spin clockwise, and the other half will see the electron spin anti-clockwise. After this, we wait for the signal to be communicated from the spin detector to the gun. Now, just as the detector is split up, and process both scenarios of the direction of the electron at the same time, the gun also splits into two, creating one version where the gun shoots and another where it doesn't. This brings us to the fate of our cat. You've probably by now guessed what's going to happen to the cat. It will be split up into two where one cat dies from getting shot and the other will go on doing great cat things or whatever cats do in their free time. Notice that we've created two different scenarios describing the events that are occurring in this strange box, 
where in one, it contains an electron spinning clockwise, a gun going off, and a cat dying. And in the other, it contains an electron spinning anti-clockwise, no gun going off, and the cat living. And you may be asking yourself, has the cat died or survived? And the answer is both. Has the detector buzzed or not? The answer is both. Is the cat alive or dead? Again, the answer is both, leading us straight back to the concept of the zombie cat. So simply put, both scenarios with the cat are true. Neither more true than the other. This is because they are both coexisting inside the box. And many of you may recognize our furry zombie cat friend as the infamous Schrodinger's cat. Okay, so you're most likely skeptical of the story I just told you. I'm guessing you've never seen a half-dead, half-living cat strolling across your front yard before. Well, a Danish physicist named Niels Bohr wanted to figure out this exact thing using quantum mechanics, and this led him to concocting the first real explanation for the zombie cat. He said that although he's never seen a zombie cat before, the math says it's there. And this suggests that there's something special about us humans that when we look at a system, the system is forced to collapse and choose one state it's going to be in. And as if by magic, the system decides to collapse into one state or the other one observed, just as we see in electrons um, passing through a double slit. But Bohr's explanation had some flaws. First, why are humans so special that they're the only creatures that can force a quantum system to collapse into a single well-defined state? This goes back to the concept of egocentricity and the changes that were made after the Copernican principle. We weren't allowed in science to assume that humans are some special beings. Second, if a cat has the power to collapse the state of an electron or detector or gun, would an elephant? And lastly, why can't the gun or detector collapse the state of the electron? Now, a lot of different theories were posed to answer these big questions, such as how human consciousness might collapse out zombie cats into a live or dead state, whereas gun or detectors have no consciousness. But it was soon found that these questions could be answered with just one word, the multiverse. Okay, fine, maybe two words. In the 1950s, a guy named Hugh Everett III created another theory. Everett believed that we should think of ourselves as quantum objects just like the cat, the gun, and the detector, rather than some sort of observers that are just special. Essentially, what he's saying is that we should add ourselves to the story. So to see how this will play out, we place our cat in a box with a gun and connect the detector as we did in the beginning. But this time, we imagine that an observer is in the story, witnessing the events occurring in this box. Now, our detector splits up as it spots the moving electron. As a result, so does our poor cat. As the observer looks inside, just like the cat, the gun, and the detector, he too is split into two distinct copies of himself. And so, with this split, the observer can see only one of the two outcomes, but never both. What's happening is the observer isn't noticing this as he's stuck in one of these two timelines, unable to see the other one. So to sum up Everett's rather large point, the reason we've never seen zombie cats is because when we look at these objects, we ourselves split into multiple timelines where different versions of us see different outcomes. 
I've been referring to these experiments as stories, but the actual word should be just universe. Different universes are being created after every action is taken. So to go back to our original universe, or story, after the observer saw this dead cat, maybe he quit his job and he was so saddened by the death of the cat, so he became a veterinarian. This change ended up with him saving the lives of thousands of animals who needed help. But if he hadn't seen the cat dead, this wouldn't have happened and those lives wouldn't have been saved. And for my literary reference of the day, this concept definitely made me think of The Garden of Forking Paths by the legendary writer and reader Jorge Luis Borges. The story follows Yu Sun, who's a German spy working in England during World War I. He has information of great importance to the German war effort, but with an Irish captain named Richard Madden closing in on him, Soon is unable to pass this information on to his masters in Berlin. So instead, he goes to this house of Dr. Stephen Albert for apparently no reason. And Stephen Albert is a famous sinologist who has great interest in Soon's grandfather, who wrote this very long and vast novel and wanted to create a maze in which all men would lose themselves. He spent 13 years on these oddly assorted tasks before he was assassinated by a stranger. His novel had no sense to it, and nobody could ever find this labyrinth that he made. It turns out, though, this being Borges, that the book and the labyrinth are one and the same thing, and the title of this finite and chaotic novel is, of course, The Garden of Forking Paths. Abbott tells you soon that Sui Pen's novel is modeled on a maze in the sense that it constantly bifurcates in time, but not in space. In all fiction, he explains, when a man is faced with alternatives, he chooses one at the expense of the others. However, in this novel, whenever a course of action has to be decided upon, rather than choosing one and pursuing its linear development, each course taken divides into two with each of these being the point of departure for other, further bifurcations, and so on. Albert also tells Soon that his grandfather, quote, believed in an infinite series of time, in a dizzily growing, ever-spreading network of diverging, converging, and parallel times. This web of time, the strands of which approach one another, bifurcate, intersect, or ignore each other throughout the centuries, embraces every possibility. We do not exist in most of them. In some you exist, and not I, while in others I do, and you do not. And yet in others both of us exist. In this one, in which chance has favored me, you have come to my gate. In another, you, crossing the garden, have found me dead. In yet another, I say these very same words, but am an error, a phantom. I won't talk about the ending of the story because it would give away major plot spoilers and I definitely recommend that you read it, but isn't it crazy that the publication of this story predates the theory of multiple universes devised by Hugh Everett by six years? And listen to the parallels in the theory. Each choice results in a diverging path in time and space. I love this because it shows that science isn't just reserved for people in lab coats or people who pursue a science degree. 
science is everywhere and it's an observation of the human condition and trying to make sense of this strange world that we just popped into, just as art and literature are observations of the very same things. Parallel universes point another path in this observation. It's a product of wonder and it's based on the principle in science that we must never take anything for granted and always ask the whys. What I love so much about this topic is that differences between life and death are determined by the spin of an electron, and as electrons continue to spin, new parallel universes will continue to be created. Our worlds are constantly changing, splitting, and creating with every possible interaction to come. And that's basically all to say about multiverses. Well, not really, but the rest is for another podcast and another timeline. Have a great day, everyone, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode.